welcome to this week's Kaki Malarkey. We have something a bit different in store for you all today. Um, history with a fictional twist. Now, I guess Simon Fairfax, his day job may be as a chartered surveyor, but this doesn't hold Simon back from his love of crime thrillers and mystery. From being brought up with tales of Robin Hood, King Arthur, etc., Simon loves this era of history, and that brings us to his book today, A Knight and a Spy in 1410. So, our first question is kind of like our classic one here on Kaki Malarkey. Can yeah. you summarise your work in 30 seconds? Okay. okay. <laughs> um, right. The book is historical fiction set in the early 15th century. Very exciting time in English history. King Henry IV is at odds with his son. There was intrigue at court, spies everywhere, assassination attempts, plots with France, Scotland and Wales. And into this, I've inserted my hero, Jamie de Grispere, along with his two friends, putting them at the centre of each plot events, especially where there's no known actual documented detail of how or why things happened. The story starts in the middle of the Hundred Years' War, dealing with piracy, the wool trade, Owen Glendower's last raid, and a plot to retake Calais, and of course, the fight for the English crown. 31 seconds. Wow. There was so much in that. I think that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. There was so much. <laughs> We've got lots to unpack here. I'm excited. That's definitely a great teaser for the book to be like, oh, yeah, I want I'm to glad. read. <laughs> do you know, it's the one thing authors hate when you have to do the back page blurb. I actually now have someone that does that for me because okay. authors hate doing the back page blurb. You can write a whole book of 100,000 words and you ask an author, an author to sum that up in a back page and they go, Oh, God. Okay. How can you? How possibly can you? Well, you can't. It's very hard. No. Right. Well, can you set the scene for us here? So we'd love to know, why did you pick this particular era of like, history and the story? And what is the process, really, of combining history into fiction? Yeah, it's a very good question, actually. Um, the why this era i'll deal with that first why, what, why this particular era i grew up <laughs> i grew up watched it reading ladybird books all about i know it makes you smile all about it. um um sort of um a series of ladybird books i grew up with um in lockdown i started reading them for kids of us that came from school and i've still got them now 100 years later and they're all about <laughs> henry the fifth richard the lionheart alexander all these wonderful people from history that sadly never get taught in schools. You jump straight from the Anglo-Saxons or Normandy straight up to the boring Tudors. Sorry, people who write about Tudors. <laughs> it's true um, though, it's true. Uh, it is, and you, and you miss out all the exciting good bits in the middle. So I grew up reading all these books and then I watched fabulous films, which you can still see, which I love. And every child that's in my care, nieces, nephews, watch these films with the Black Shield of Falworth. It is the best knights in armor film ever ever done and it's got Tony Curtis in it again it's back in the 50s but it's fabulous it's got everything you want so all this was floating around in my head and I I felt one day I'd like to write about it so when I finished my deal series um I thought I was odd then I went to a seminar and um this chap who wrote a lot of books said when he's writing book say C he's thinking about book the plot for books d and e and i thought i was weird this is exactly what i would do and i thought this is strange and i write on bits of paper here and there and when i was going along like this by the time i'd finished book four of the deal series this story was just banging a hole in my head and i had to get it written yeah so that's Fantastic. why i chose this era because i love this bit and I, I grew up with it and then how do you do the process well it's tons and tons and tons of research You've got to read, and I don't normally read non-fiction books, but for this, there's about six or seven fabulous books just on Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth, 
what was going on, da 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 da. Mm. And for the first time ever, when I wrapped my other books, I didn't do a storyline. It just comes straight out of my head and it's bang. This one, yeah. I had to do a storyline. And I've got a great big timeline um, on my wall and about 10 sheets of A4 starting in January and finishing in December. Oh. And then on the other side, which my wife thinks it's hilarious, I've got all the characters real and imagined with goodies and baddies on the other side. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and so Any that, good so stories that, that, about goodies and baddies. <laughs> oh, you can't, can't be that goodies and baddies. And I've got what they did, who they were, whether it was my imagination goodies or you know, all these kinds. And there were <laughs> so many great goodies and baddies from the time that I, I you know, the story was written for me by history. Mm. And I, and and the book I'm doing now, the next one, I'm surprised they got it all in in real time, let alone me trying to fist it in in a year. It's just impossible. It's fantastic, but it's, uh, it's great fun. Oh, it sounds fascinating. It sounds like such an interesting process being able to combine the, you obviously said you love fiction as well as, well, more than nonfiction, but you've yeah. got the nonfiction element as well and weaving it all together. It sounds so interesting, doesn't it? Uh, it, it is great fun and the great thing is because there are so many holes in history. So the historians have come along and say, well, this happened. Mm. Why? You know, or so the, mm. like, everyone debates Richard III and the two princes of the yes. yeah, Did yeah, he yeah. kill them? Didn't he kill them? Where's the answer? Nobody knows. So there in steps answer, somebody yeah. like, exactly. In, in steps someone like me and says, well, I think this happened. And my little character came along and did kill them. With, you know, it's just <laughs> yeah. it's great. So many holes. So who was your, who was like your favourite real life character that kind of jumped out to you then? How did you, how well, did you incorporate them into the book? Yeah, it's quite interesting because when I started doing all the research and one person came out that everyone will have heard of and everyone thinks of as almost a cartoon or a pantomime character. Ooh. And this is Dick Whittington. Yes. Now, when I started researching Dick Whittington, like everybody else, I thought of him, you know, turn around Dick Whittington, streets of paper with gold, this kind of thing. Yeah. And the further I got in, the further I thought, oh, wow. He was three times Lord Mayor of London. He was... Um, the spy master for Henry IV. He was the mm -hmm. biggest influential mercer and trader of that century. He, he served three kings, and in each one, one got rid of the other piece by piece, he managed to tread that fine line between saying yes on one side, a real Yago-esque character, and came on the other and said, yeah, okay, well, I can help you now you're in power. And each time he got in and helped them, and uh, he's just, an, and there was yeah. so little known about him, I had to keep digging and digging and digging to find out. And again, there were big gaps in his characters that for me as an author were great fun because suddenly I could have him as this slightly sort of Machiavellian character pulling all the strings, behind yeah. it. it was just great great fun really good oh. fun to write about uh, no it sounds amazing and did you have any kind of did you run into any problems when you're trying to bring him into life in the no because I, again it's research so when, when i'm doing the research I, I have all these notes sticking out of books you know like little post-it notes <laughs> little things say, sometimes the best idea is strike when you're in the middle of nowhere <laughs> uh, exactly exactly and when I had this, so then I had to have a picture and then I, I, I go luckily Google's there and I found images of him because I live near Gloucester. That was his hometown. That's where he originated and came from. Oh, nice. And so there were pictures of him there and I've put this picture, real pictures of him, you know, obviously drawings. Um, and we did all this and then I put it all together and, and, and so I had this lovely image in my mind of what he looked like, his wife, and then the more books. I had to, had to buy books on Dick Whittington, which you buy them and you think they're going to be this great big weighty too. And they're about 30, 40 pages long. And you think, okay, it's an easy read. Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's an easy read. And that's all there. And, and so, 
you start to build up this picture and then you'll find a, another big book on something else and suddenly he'll appear in there and say, oh yes, Dick Whittington went on a treaty to so-and-so and spied for the kid. Oh, hello. You know, and sometimes it's literally half a page, which as an author, you have to translate into yeah. three or four chapters, which again is great because you can say what the hell you like and no one can dispute it because nobody knows any different. Yeah. Great fun. Great <laughs> You've got fun. all the creative freedom you can want in some uh, ways, haven't you? Exactly. It's just, it's just a cardboard cutout and you can colour in all the bits in the middle. Fantastic. I love it. <laughs> Did you think it helped? You said about, um, you just mentioned about Gloucester. Because when you see a character and you kind of know about where they come from, yeah, does it help I, for you to go to that place? I have to visit. Yeah. Um, the same in my deal books. I visited every country, which is a great excuse to skive off oh, around the world. Yes. But oh, wow. with this, I had to go. So I visit all the castles. So I went to Glindower's stronghold up in um, Macantleth. Forgive that for the Welsh people if I'm not pronouncing it properly. <laughs> um, it's all right. I'm bad at pronunciation. <laughs> uh, and so Macantleth, and I went over to, um, to see Gloucester Castle. And then I went to Worcester, which is my home city, where the castle doesn't exist anymore. And I didn't realise, of course, stupidly, that we had a castle. So I went up there. To the green and imagine what it would be like down on where the castle used to be yeah. so everywhere i possibly can from the borders up in scotland to the um to, down to, to wales and and then and then across to worcester and places like that i try and go to every single place i can because you cannot beat getting there and even though it's 1100 years later or 600 years later <laughs> you still you still get a feel for what might have been and how it was and uh, there are all kinds of bits there that you can't pick up from books oh definitely it's the best way to bring history to life i think because if it not is. you just you, you like you said you can visualize it and your imagination can run wild and i can bet it's so influential for writing especially like a historical fiction yeah absolutely uh, you, 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 there's nothing quite like it and even just seeing what the i don't know the people are like you try and sort of imagine what they look like in the day uh, it's all kind it's just yeah. getting a being there really and mm, you just make yeah. tons of notes and off you go and scribble when you get back home <laughs> was there any piece of um obviously we love a little bit of a military history nerd out on this podcast <laughs> was there any piece of military history that jumped out of you and you thought oh that's really cool there was and what was so interesting about this going back to the dick whittington thing is that it was literally when people read the book they said we didn't know about this where did where did you get the information so i told them and they said well we've got the book and we can't find it and i said it's literally half a page in one <laughs> book and they said how did you do this off this and, and i love this bit of because you, you just can't conceive how this would have happened and it's it's going to be a bit of a spoiler for people reading the book so i'm sorry if this is the case it's only a tiny <laughs> bit in just just before in 1410 they the French, and again, I went to St. Omar, which is where this is set, which is a, a town about um, three or four days ride, I'll leave it like that, north of Paris. And it's sort of north, north, west of Paris. Mm. And it's about 15, 16 miles, just to hold that in your mind for a second, 15, 16 miles to the east of Calais. Now, what they did in this cathedral, they decided to hide it from the English, who still owned Calais at that time, and build a siege engine. Not a little one, but this thing was about 50 feet high, all made of wood. How the hell were they going to transport in secret a siege engine they built in a cathedral, which they had to put in in pieces and then take out in pieces and roll it 15 miles without the what? British realising they were going to take it all the way to Calais? Who the hell was going to pull this thing? A 500 ton truck? How were they going to do this? 
No, I was going to say, you'd have to put quite a disguise uh, to hide that and disguise that into the battlefield. Exactly. (laughs) How are they going to do this? And then, we don't know how this happened, the English set fire to it in the cathedral. Who did it? How did it happen? They found out about it. All this secrecy and intrigue. And then burning down the siege engine, they burned down half the cathedral and half the town. Somebody wasn't a very popular bunny at that time. Uh, It was complete scandal. And the English turned around and said, but you decried God's house. You built this machine of war in there. What did you think was going to happen? Yeah, it's the whole, and this is all done in half a page. That's all we know. We don't know who, some people said it was a monk. Some people said it was an English spy. Well, I'll take that one. (laughs) And and this is just a fascinating bit that that I I just loved. And I wrote about, well, the whole half quarter of the plot in France was built around this bit. It was just Fabulous. And I, I couldn't wish for better. I loved it. And I'd never have known anything about it. And so many people have read about it and come back to me and said, we didn't know about this. And I said, no, no, did I? <laughs> it's nice when you can illuminate a little piece of history that no one knows about or yeah. you've just discovered. You stumbled across an absolute gem. Something yeah. that um, I'm sure we've mentioned it before on this podcast about when you don't even need to sensationalise it. When no, it's actually don't. that interesting that you're like, that, that can go straight in the thesis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine making that up as an author? Oh, yeah. I'm going to say that they built a, a war engine in the cathedral yeah right yeah. You know, <laughs> go away you know but no it's it's stranger than uh, you know truth is stranger than fiction here yeah. and it's it's amazing when you find that so i'm sure like with that fact did you have many other facts that you actually couldn't fit in the book that you wish could be included yeah there was one one i loved and again i could not believe this so let me just set the scene um you're back in the medieval times can you imagine what medicine was like at that time Oh God, yeah, grass. Pretty, pretty bad, Bugs. pretty bad. So oh, this me. happened um, before my book started and I sort of alluded tiny bits, but I couldn't actually fit it in because it was just, it just didn't work. So Battle of Shrewsbury, 1403, seven years before my battle. Prince Henry, to be Prince Henry, King Henry V, was only 16. Now you imagine this, 16 years old, he's leading the main wing of his father's army at 16. My God. He's fighting on. And because the visors of those days and the helmets were really hard to breathe behind for a long period of time, he raises his visor and he gets shot by an arrow underneath his cheekbone that drives right the way through to within your young. So think about this, two mil, I'll put it in modern terms, quarter of an inch from his spine. (gasps) <gasps> this is halfway through the battle oh, so like- yeah right no right the way here uh, go more to your cheek and uh, right underneath your yeah there yeah more towards oh! your nose more towards oh, your nose goodness. right underneath there <laughs> drives in and he falls down they say come on sire you've got to leave and he says no no if i leave the battle everyone will lose heart so he breaks the arrow off <gasps> carries on fighting for four hours oh, wins the battle you know you bloody wimps go away you know oh, i'm only silly an arrow <laughs> gets there and this is when the story really starts to get interesting, if it wasn't interesting enough. Oh, my God. He then gets taken to Shrewsbury Castle on a litter. So he's been fighting for four hours with an arrow lodged a quarter of an inch from his spine, carries on, kills all the baddies, gets there, and then they spend four hours, no anaesthetic, trying to remove the arrow. He is dying at this point. Yeah. And then they call a guy called John Bradmore, chief surgeon of the day, he comes along and says, well, chaps, you've got it wrong, actually. This is not the way to do this. He said, but in order to do it and to remove this arrowhead, which I can do, you've got to move him to Kenilworth, 
oh, that's easy then. An arrow lodged in your head. You've got to move oh, him on no. a five-hour journey by cart oh, across God. country on rutted roads. He said, the only way we can do it is because my blacksmith is there and I've got designed to make a piece of equipment that's never been done before to get the arrow out. <laughs> so oh, he goes along and he creates. They do it. They move the poor old prince along who's still dying and they create something called a tenac... Ten I have trouble with this one. Tenaculus, sorry. Okay, and okay. if you can, you know those modern corkscrews where you turn the corkscrew in, the two arms flick up. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. It looks a bit like that. Oh. Ooh. So <laughs> he then goes along and he feeds him something called dwale, which is um, sort of an anaesthetic of the day, which I, I was going to say, I'm hoping an anaesthetic. <laughs> something yeah. strong. Uh, just a little bit, but it doesn't. Anyway, so he goes along and then he says, right, I want this tenaculus. He then knows enough about it to boil elder splints in hot water, sew them into linen, and then gets rows of honey. And what he does was he pushes this tenaculus in, which is like a big spike going in, lodges it into the arrow. Now the arrow's barbed, and what the others have been trying to do is pull it out. You can imagine if you pull a barb like a thorn out, it rips the skin away and it'll kill yeah. it. So he puts this in and then he puts tents, these, these elder splints in, wrapped in honey and linen, and as he screws it, just like on a corkscrew, he screws it a bit and it pulls it. Then he puts the tents in. And this process eases it out. It, all, it takes him about two hours. So the poor old prince, he's fought a battle for four hours, lying there for four hours, travelled in a cart. Twelve hours later, he's just having his arrowhead removed. Oh and basically, he does all this. This is John Bradmore, the surgeon, gets the arrowhead out and puts honey in, which is a natural healer, rose of honey especially, mm. and it all seals up. He survives. He survives. No Not only way. That, he this survive. is mad. He's oh fighting God. three days later in the battle. Like, unfortunately, he didn't make it. No, he's fighting three days later. Oh so all he rips these days, he's 60 or so, I've got a cold. Get out there and fight, boy. Three days later, he's in his armour again, beating wow. the crap out of the baddies. Amazing. Absolutely extraordinary. Wow. And if Thinking you see, about myself at 16, I'm like, this guy. <laughs> I know, he's a superhero. And, and if you look, and this is the very interesting fact that came out of it, is that if you see any portraits of King Henry V, all in history, only ever one side of his face shows because the other side has got a big puckered scar that nobody, that he would ever let anyone see. You never see a full frontal picture of Henry V. It's always one side and it's always the same side. So you can never see the side where the arrow went in. Quite interesting, really. Oh my, oh yeah, I'm now lucky. That's so, that's so interesting. Yeah, so oh, I, I wish I could have got that in, but I couldn't. <laughs> oh, well, you've got it in now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, so there you are. <laughs> it's here now, that's fantastic, oh my God. Yeah, that's I'm so shocked by that. Really, well, you've clearly got a huge passion for history. I like here on the podcast, we like to know a bit about the authors as well. So, what got you into history then? Was there like a kind of defining moment? Did your parents kind of inspire you? Or, I, I think I've always, like any kid, you know, I, I, any typical boy, I had a piece of wood in my hand playing knights in armor when I was young. <laughs> Instead, it was, it was books, it was films like. Um, the original Robin Hood, and by that I mean some people think the original Robin Hood was was sort of um, sort of the one with uh, with um, Cost, Kevin Costner in. And all. <laughs> I'm going back to 1935 with Errol Flynn. If you've never seen that, oh, film, I think I have seen that it's one. The best, it's the best Robin Hood in the world. Errol Flynn does all his own stunts and he's jump. So there was that, and then there was the Black Shield of Falworth, which I keep going on about. And then there was another one called um, King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table, which is about 1960. All these wonderful films, all the sword fightings, 
just extraordinary in there. All these sort of things fired by imagination. And again, the Ladybird books, I was always encouraged to read by my parents. And the Ladybird books were the first course, you know, because as a child, trying to engage a child to read, you want something that's exciting and visual. And uh, the Ladybird books are just great like that. And they sort of bring all these heroes to life. Yes, they sanitize it a bit, but that's what you want as a child. And it's just great oh, yeah. fun. And you, you, have, you have a way. Of, so, so that's what dragged me in. And also the fact that I was so disappointed at school that you get to this period where, you know, you've had the Normans in 1066 and they say, right, Tudors. Mm. <laughs> what about all the good bits in the middle of the battles mm. and the fun stuff and you know how can you not do the battle of Agincourt I mean you know it did, did beggars belief and Richard the Lionheart and all these wonderful characters and then they're going to Tudors now Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's funny okay. you say that. In my first year of uni, I remember looking through the modules and I picked the Battle of Agincourt module, um, the guy called Dr. Andy King at Southampton, and it was fantastic and I enjoyed it. I've never looked at a medieval battle in such detail. And yeah. some of the accounts were so, they were so illuminating, like the amount that you can actually pick out of it. So I'm very used, like with my own historical background, I'm very used to looking at modern conflict where you've got lots of stuff detailed down you can very clearly get a picture of it but when you're looking at the battle of agincourt like knowing the background of the, the french and the english the context um and the actual just the fine details of the battle and the army god it's brilliant isn't it the, it is. the genius that happened back in those it days it is it's it's extraordinary and and what you may or may not know is that um going backwards in in king henry's the fifth history he learned about the stakes he first got the idea for the stakes in front of the archers when he fought the welsh when he was in charge of the english army in wales age 14 because <laughs> that's what you do age 14 yeah. and, he, <laughs> and, and the welsh taught him that trick of putting the stakes in he learned an awful lot about the strategy oh, wow. he was to yeah. lose when he fought owen glendower um in wales and he thought well that's a good idea i'll use that one you know because all the welsh got behind these stakes and really stuffed him on a couple of battles while yeah. he was still learning age 14 um to understand what was going on and um so yeah the the, the stakes from the, from from the agincourt thing um which he, everyone knows about are, are all like that and they all, all have and that's where he got the idea from but over in wales when he Amazing. fought against the welsh oh, we're coming out with all these great facts today i'm absolutely <laughs> <loving> <laughs> brilliant <laughs> <laughs> we keep coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so how, I mean, just how did you get to where you are today? What's been the process? How have you, um, how have you got to where you are now with all the, your fabulous books? <laughs> I started, when we came back from Italy, I started writing. I'd always sort of gone through, I'd always had this sort of mind that sort of, I was always looking to see if I saw a building, I think, how could I get into that? How could I do that? What could I get for <laughs> air, airport security? Or could it be possible? To, <laughs> my, mind's always, my wife thinks I'm going to be locked up somewhere. Um, <laughs> and so I started writing the deal books on that basis, where the first one's set in it, half in England, half in Italy, because I always try and write about what I know. And when I did those, then I got to, and I suppose like any author, I only know one author that wrote his first book, his best book first um in 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 sort of the thriller genre and you improve as an author and i'm really pleased that i didn't write the knight and a spy first because mm. i can see how i've not been big-headed you know in my own little way i can see how i've improved with each book and um so writing each one it was better and then i found a a new editor who has, has sort of changed. The thing about an editor is a developmental editor has got to keep your voice 
and yet make it work. And it's a very, very fine line between being too strong and you lose your voice and not being strong enough and you get gaps and holes and things like that. And I'm really pleased I found him for this book. And um, so, so it's been quite a long journey of sort of almost serving your apprenticeship on the other books. It's not to say I'm not happy with them. I am. And you could never change them again. But, but, you, but you see how you progress. And that's what you want to do as an author. You want to get better. And so that's how I got to where I am now, by writing and writing and writing and keep reading. I, I read prodigiously in all genres all the time that I'm writing and that helps because sometimes sometimes you'll see a film or or a clip in a film nothing to do with what you write about you think oh that's a good idea uh, and you think then in your head how you can change I saw this one thing in a film it was a book about oh I don't know assassins in the Middle East or something and this girl left one of the baddies rooms in her underwear there was no sexual content it was just the implication that something had been going on in the room Mm. And I thought, what a great thing. You don't need to tell someone. You can just hint mm. that, that be, if you see someone leaving with, you know, her, her, no blouse on and just in her and you think, oh, golly, what's been going on in there? And I thought, <laughs> you, know, you do, though, don't you? And no matter how much you might turn around, the guy in there, but no, no, nothing went on here. I was just checking to make sure that she was warm enough, you know. <laughs> You, nothing oh, that old line. <laughs> yeah that old line yeah old. really do you think i believe that but the fact that you you saw her just leaving the room now i thought what if she wasn't even in the room that it was set up to make it look when you went in that that's what you are supposed to see yeah and and certainly so you're watching the, the the answer is that you can never ever watch a film or read a book again in the same way ever again because you're going to say that wouldn't work that can't happen, that doesn't work. And, and it yeah. ruins so much for you in that regard because you're constantly researching in your mind and you cannot turn off. Yeah. Mm. That kind of leads me quite nicely into this question then, which is probably my favourite one to ask guests because, you know, I love to have a little, a little bitch sometimes. It's quite <laughs> <laughs> <What> some... Oh dear. We love the drama. <laughs> what is there anything? I mean, you can go kind of whatever field you want, whether you want to go like historical fiction or kind of medieval history. What is something that really pisses you off in the field? Like, is there a myth that you came across that you want to debunk or like a stereotype or just something you think? <laughs> Oh, God. I, 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 <laughs> oh, here we go. Um, I'm going <laughs> to annoy an awful lot of people here. Oh, um, yes. Okay. Especially on the other side of the pond. Um, <laughs> I'm going to keep it general because <laughs> I might get some bad press here. What really annoys me is historical fiction, doesn't matter what age, where they turn around and they get the language wrong. Oh, Ooh. golly, that Ooh. that's a really interesting point. So they turn around and they'll say, and especially the Americans do this, you get a lot of American writers that think they can write Regency fiction and they have gotten in there. Gotten? Gotten? I want to go and <laughs> Gotten in the 17th century? What are you talking about? And they'll turn around yeah. and say, kids. I've seen kids in the 17th century. Kids are children of goats, you idiot not in the 17th <laughs> century we just didn't have it then and they turn around and finish on a preposition in direct speech so say what are you going there for whereas it should be in those times for why are you going there mm, yeah it just, it's all like the subtleties isn't it because yeah, it changes it yeah you said it changes the meaning 
that it changes meaning completely and they'll turn around and they'll get the manners of the time wrong. Now, if you look at Downton Abbey, they got every single thing right. I mm-hmm. just use that as a perfect example. They had the servants never coming in through the front door. I read this one thing where they had the governess taking the child. No, she was coming in through the front door by herself. I thought, she'd never come in through the front door, you idiot. She'd <laughs> in the servants. To, and, you know, and she'd go up and then they had an understairs maid bowing to a governess. No, no, that wouldn't happen. They might nod at her and say, morning, miss, but they never bow to her. Mm. No. These sort of things, it's like walking with a stone in your shoe. It annoys yeah. you so much. Yeah, like just like, like, like that po- those poorly researched elements of historical fiction, yes. basically. That's your big gripe. that's my that's my worst thing because what it does is it suddenly drags you from the period you're in you know they may they might give the best description of a period building they might say that you know the gravel drive and the workers were there pulling the weeds rather than using weed oil or somewhere like that which you know we don't want that to happen and then they turn around and they do um do this and then you then you get a piece of language and suddenly you're dragged back into the 21st century you think Mm. no I don't want that to happen. Because you That's, want that immersive experience. You don't want you anything do, to because kind you, of... You, you want to be completely in that period. Yeah. You never want... If you want a perfect example of how to write, and, and I say this to people who ask me to look at stuff, and I said, Had, you're, re, you're writing Regency Romance. Have you read any Georgette Hare? And they say, who? And I say, sorry, can't read your book. Said, <laughs> said, because if you haven't read Georgette Hare and you're writing Regency, you haven't got a clue. Yeah. Because she is the ultimate Regency romance writer and if you haven't read that forget it because you won't wow that's a top tip to all our budding historical fiction writers out there I think it's true though if you're you're gonna do this you gotta do it properly exactly no point at all but you know you can't nod at it I know not like it just oh yeah there's gonna be a little touch of this history we're gonna go all out here yeah Yeah. you can't say oh he wore a he wore a frogged coat or he wore some hessian pantaloons and think that's gonna get you away with it nah nah Uh, that's the one thing and then just if we've got enough time the other thing is fight the other thing is fight scenes Okay. It really annoys me. Now, I did a lot of martial arts and every single fight scene that I write, I run past my former instructor oh. and, a cu- and a couple of street fighters who I know, don't ask. And <laughs> I say Ooh. to them, I just want you to read this. Does it work? And da, 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 da. I said, because what really annoys me is, and you see this a lot in, in films again, where you've got this hero or heroine, dare I say it, who suddenly takes out six guys and I'm falling about laughing. If you get, <laughs> if you get your arm broken, you don't get up with it straight and start punching with it. Or if you get, <laughs> if you get punched in the throat, you're going down probably dead. There's yeah. no bounce back. Or if you get shot six times, and I have a doctor, a military doctor, who I check with wounds and say, if they got shot here, what would happen? How would it be treated? Oh, yeah. I can't do it in the old days. Would they be able to do X, Y, or Z? And the answer is no, or you can't mm. do this. Or Glenn, that, Simon, that is just completely um, impossible. There's no way that's going to happen. So, it, so interesting. That, 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 that's the other thing that, that annoys yeah. me about the fights. There are some, there are some very good historical writers. I'm not going to name one of them is one of my favourite. But the one thing that that particular writer cannot do very well, and it's acknowledged, is the fight scenes they're very glossed over and gen- and sort of generic rather than specific whereas someone like christian cameron writes the best fight scene 
on the planet in swords. Fantastic. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, I guess it's the same in films as well. Yeah, like you say, it's in films when you see when you see a fight scene or you just about um, the hero just suddenly comes in and just takes out everyone or just gets a really unrealistic injury and then gets up and you're like, well, it wouldn't have actually gone down like that, really, would it? <laughs> no, it wouldn't. And, and it takes a long time to recover. You know, I'd, I've been punched with fighting pads on my chest and my, my instructor around said, you ready? And I had this big pad on my chest and he did this one inch punch like Bruce Lee and he went bang like that. And I felt as though someone had smacked me in the chest oh with a God. sledgehammer and that's oh with a pad on my chest. Yeah. He'd done that really. The guy would be in hospital, there'd be no jumping back up again and say, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't work. Oh, so, there we are. <laughs> so final question on you. Yes. What has been the best moment of your career so far then? Um, it would have to be finishing 1410 for one very simple reason. I'd written in one genre, I was desperate to be able to dump, jump genres and I believe in my own little way that I've done it and the 1410 is my best book yet. And so for me, I'm so excited to be able to jump the complete, you know, jump or go back in time by 600 years, write, I hope authentically given my earlier comments and actually being able to, to jump genres because ultimately when this series is finished i want to do a second world war series that also has been banging a hole in my head oh, and i promise and i promised my wife that i i would write some regency romance for her um so <laughs> i'm gonna a couple oh. of those so I, i've actually learned that i can jump genres and that is that's fabulous as far as i'm concerned i'm really excited about that oh how it's wonderful it's nice that this has been a great stepping stone for you in your career yeah that's really lovely to hear so we'll move on to our final section, which we kind of call like our fun rad. And I feel like you might have some really interesting bits for this. So we're going to okay. ask you a set of questions and give you an immediate answer to. So, okay. So. <laughs> no buzzers. No buzzers. Yeah, no buzzers. <laughs> so who's your favourite um, figure in all of history? Henry V. Okay. Who's Ooh. your least favourite figure? Two. I'm going to give two here. I'm going to cheat. King John or Oliver Cromwell? Oh, can we talk about Oliver Cromwell for a minute? Why go do you on, hate him? Go on, <laughs> yeah. go on then. <laughs> what is your, what's your biggest, like, why do you hate Oliver Cromwell so much? Because there's so many reasons. <laughs> well, th there are the obvious ones. Then there's the buggeration factor. He went and destroyed all those wonderful castles. He pulled yes. them all down. I'm yeah. going to go to my research when he destroyed them all. Nasty yeah. little man. I mean, yeah, want to see them now. Why yeah, I want to see them. He destroyed these. It says, da, 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 doing the research. Of course, it was pulled down in the restaurant when Oliver Cromwell did. And the, yeah. so, what? Why did you do oh, that, you nasty little man? man? You've taken all this history away. Not fair. Really Terrible not fair. fellow. Terrible oh, fellow. <laughs> I agree with that one. Okay, so then if you were going to go on a road trip with three people in history, who would you have in your car? Uh, Prince or King Henry V, whichever you want to call him. Richard III, I love Richard III, um, and Alexander the Great. Ooh. Providing they could all speak English, because we'd have a serious trouble. Yeah, <laughs> we have a bit of a language barrier there. We'd have like a special kind of like language thing going on. There's Fantastic. So that would be quite fun. Definitely, I'd be a good car to sit in. Yeah, it'd be great. Okay, final question. If you could go back in time for one day, where and when would you go to? Oh, no, no question. Um, ancient Rome in... 45 or 46, um, I think that's right, BC, when Julius Caesar was his, at the height of his fame and power. Oh, incredible to go back to, isn't it? Uh, yeah. you, you, so much is and isn't known about, about ancient Rome. 
Mm. I, 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 just for one day to see, hear Latin spoken, is it properly? Should, I wouldn't, yeah. I speak Italian, but I wouldn't speak. I just like to hear it. I love to say it my son with me because he speaks a bit of Latin. And I just like to go back there for one day and then just see how the people reacted. Well, oh, just be and see the Colosseum. And it's, I know, could, yeah, could it they is flood it? Couldn't yeah. they flood it? Was it possible to have, have seaborne games in there? Come on, I've got to know. Oh, I get that's brilliant. I completely agree. I love Rome. So that would be fantastic. There's yeah. something so fascinating about the ancient world, isn't there? Like that's such oh, a good is. place to go back to because we know so little about it. We've got such yeah. little uh... Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough understanding about medley, medieval times in England. Let alone yeah. imagine going back to Rome and seeing how it all worked and seeing, oh, it would oh, just phenomenal. be... Amazing. Uh, yeah. And uh, how did they build those? Oh, it's just, oh, it just goes on and on. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> well i think that's a perfect place to finish on really. thank you so much for yeah. talking to us no today. thank you very much it's been great it's fun fantastic. You think. it's really our fantastic. first guest that's talking about historical fiction as well so thank you so oh much brilliant well i'm delighted no thank you very much for inviting i've had great fun you made me work hard too which is always good <laughs> that was the brilliant simon fairfax talking to us about his historical fiction a night and a spy 1410 join us next week when we'll be talking to david o'keefe about his book one day in august until then, make sure to like, share, retweet and give us a follow at Karki Malarkey. Until next time, this has been Phoebe Style and Olivia Smith. And this is Karki Malarkey signing up.